hello. Welcome to the Being Cherish podcast, a podcast for the Chinese Irish community and other minority communities living in Ireland to share their stories. I'm your host, Diana Chung, and I'm a filmmaker from Derry. This is episode eight of the podcast, and I am sad to announce it is our final episode for this season. We're having a wee break, and we'll be back with you soon though. I want to take this opportunity to say a massive thank you for all the support you have given us over the past few months. We are overwhelmed by your kindness. Keep sharing our podcast and keep sending us your messages. As you know, we are on Instagram and Facebook at Being Cherish. And as always, we love hearing from you. I have a real cracker for you on this episode. Before we get into the episode with this legend, I want to mention a couple of important things. Firstly, we do talk about the issue of racism mention some racial slurs in this episode so if it isn't for you right now maybe you want to listen another time and secondly there is a couple of swear words in this so you might want to stick on the headphones when an avon man and a dairy woman have a conversation it really is hard not to swear we did try though kelvin tan is a chef from county meath and is currently based in nottingham working in a two michelin star restaurant his family are immigrants from malaysia and established themselves in the beautiful town of Navan. Kelvin's culinary skills extend beyond a three-in-one and a spice bag, but it doesn't stop us chatting about Ireland's Chinese takeaway scene. Who really did invent the chicken ball though? That's what I want to know. If we have any silver linings from the past year, it has to be Kelvin's huge Instagram following, where he gets people excited about authentic Chinese home cooking, which he admits only happened because he had so much time on his hands. He credits his dad for teaching him all the traditional dishes of his childhood. We chat about how he ended up in the kitchen, his future plans to bring authenticity back to the capital and start up his own place. And oh, he didn't know who Hazel Chu was. Yep, true story. The cheek of him. Please help me welcome the man himself, Kelvin Tan. Tan, very big welcome to the podcast. I have been listening to your interviews on Chinese Shipping Girl and Phenomenal and Asian. Loved, loved listening to you, loved those podcasts, enjoyed them very, very much. But one thing, you're on the Being Cherished podcast now. Welcome home. Yeah. Welcome home. <laughs> I know. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I, it's just it was it was great to be on other people's podcasts you know to to speak about i guess my journey and show a bit of representation but then when i came across yours uh it was actually elsa who's from Ooh. northern ireland as oh, well yes she she messaged me saying have you heard of this podcast and i was like no and as soon as you said she sent me the link i was like oh my god this is amazing you know <laughs> oh, shout out for elsa for sharing that yeah that's, that's what we need we need it because we're, we're just starting out and uh, we're, we have a small platform at the minute and i put my hand up i'm terrible on social media instagram is brand new to me i probably need a master class from yourself to get the, our name out there and we're on facebook as well i'm a wee bit more familiar with facebook but instagram just blows my mind it's it's a lot of work it's definitely a lot of work but I think once you get once you get going, it, it rolls. But it's funny that thing, social media, like you've got Facebook, it just shows like ages, right? Because people say, okay, I know how to use Facebook, but Instagram is difficult. For me, it's like, I know how to use, I don't really use Facebook anymore. I use Instagram, 
of TikTok. Just I can't get my head around that. <laughs> I'm glad you're saying that, Kelvin. You're making me feel a million years old because Facebook is obviously my generation. And I'm going further back, probably before your time, Kelvin. But Bebo was our platform. Oh yeah, yeah, I was on that too. Yeah, Bebo. <laughs> God, <So>, jeez. <laughs> it's great to hear that someone from the community, Elsa, who's from from Northern Ireland that sh shared it with yourself. It's it's lovely to hear those those things because we we really need people to kind of share it and and spread the the word about because our Ireland is a very small country in, yes. in itself. And then when you think about the the East Asian and Southeast Asian community in Ireland, it's tiny. So yeah, I I think so. I mean, we didn't know. I didn't personally know much many other. Asian people in Ireland growing up myself. I grew up in County Meath um, in Navin, so it was a relatively small town. I mean, it's the capital of Meath, but it was small, like, you know, it was a very working class place. And the only Asian people there were uh, my family, my uncle, uh, who had his restaurant, and there was another family in town. At the time, it was only three, but that was it. I mean, I think, I guess every town in Ireland had a Chinese restaurant, I think. But you were just so busy with your own restaurant that you didn't really mix with other people, I think. Unless you went up to like eight, to Dublin to buy your uh, weekly shop, you know, for the restaurant, for the business. And then my dad would probably see another boss and he'd start speaking to him like, oh, blah, blah, blah. You know, only kind of those interactions or if you went to Dublin for dim sum and you'd see another kind of like family or something like that. We were quite lucky in, in, in the north. I think there was a very vibrant Chinese community and... You know, there was support groups like the Chinese Welfare Association that provided support for the Chinese community. And, you know, over the years, and I'm chatting back in the, even the late 80s, I think, or even throughout the 80s, there was, you know, the Chinese Chamber of Commerce where all the Chinese takeaway and restaurant business owners had come together to kind of share interests and, you know, support each other in that food industry. So we're lucky and that and then from that Chinese Welfare Association and other voluntary groups were born so every year there would be the Chinese New Year celebrations and there would be events I'm from Derry so there was quite quite a few back back in the day in the 80s as well and my parents started their restaurant in the early 70s oh, so my. we've 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 had Chinese takeaways and restaurants since I think as early as the late 60s in Derry so we're our history was quite quite far back what about your family back. your family um, what year did they my my see my, my uncle came to ireland when he was i think 17 or 18 to do the, the leaving cert um because his friends were coming over to do it so he came over with them and he ended up going to trinity college in dublin after that um and then i don't know what he was studying but he dropped out and ended up working in kites in Dublin, um, in Ballsbridge. And then I think he worked up to like a restaurant manager because he could speak English. And he's there for a couple of years. I think the boss at the time wanted to sell, wanted him to take it over. Uh, but he ended up just, he wanted to do his own business, um, find a business partner, move to Navin. Um, so that was that, that was back in, I think, 80s, late 80s maybe. Because I know my dad came over then because my uncle needed a chef. 
and my mom just got married to my dad. So my mom was my dad's, no, my, my mom was my uncle's <laughs> sister. <laughs> um, and I remember my, because my dad will always speak very fondly of Manchester. I was like, why, 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 why Manchester? He's like, oh, because when I first came over, we had to buy, we had to go to Manchester to buy all the kitchen equipment from like Chinatown in Manchester. And he said to me, if you're ever in Manchester, go to um, Yangtzeing for Dim Sum. And I was like, so he went in like 80s. I remember going in like 2000 and something. And it was still there. So it was like, wow, this is an institution, you know. In the 70s and 80s, that first wave of Hong Kong immigration to Ireland, the huge, you know, there was huge numbers in the 80s because, you know, most of the immigrants were from, you know, the Hakka villages that were farming or fishing villages. And Hong Kong at that time was moving towards like economic kind of growth. So the villages that didn't receive formal education were being left behind. So they're their options was to to emigrate and you said you mentioned that your dad talked about Manchester obviously Manchester Liverpool London those big cities in England they had a you know they they were the first ones to kind of have the Chinese takeaway and restaurant kind of industry and I think a lot of people moved to Ireland and Northern Ireland it was a, a business opportunity there was no competition I remember my dad saying like they when all the people first came over they were in London but then they started going up north First, then like Manchester, then Scotland, and then from Scotland they move over to Northern Ireland. <laughs> yeah, that is, that so, is, yeah. yeah. To start business, obviously, it's good to not have competition, but it was detrimental to the community because we became our community were very, you know, isolated because, yeah. as you said, the different towns there there isn't a town in Ireland that there isn't a Chinese takeaway or a restaurant. That's that's the yeah, thing. So the community became quite separate. So that was, that was a, and you know, you said yourself, you never, you never, you know, grew up with other families that looked like you. And yeah, a lot of people I spoke, have spoken to have said the same. We, people have said we are this only Chinese family in this town, you know, even people I've spoken to on the podcast who grew up in Dublin and Dublin is a big city with diversity, but same experiences, (laughs) you know. Uh, it's, yeah. So I just wanted to talk a wee bit about Kelvin, your amazing career to date. You're you're actually the first chef I have on the on the podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ensure the the episodes were you know people from all walks of life to show basically. Like I started this podcast for some representation to show that the community are very diverse within themselves because I think. Some people, when they think of the Chinese community, they automatically think of Chinese takeaways, Chinese restaurants. Yeah. <laughs> that stereotype is still quite strong in Ireland. Oh, so, God. Yeah, that's, that's, that's why I wanted to show a diversity in backgrounds. And, and it's very interesting to, to read, hear about your story, Kelvin. I'd love you to talk about how you ended up being in the, in the position that you're in today. Yeah. So, I, like I said, I grew up, my parents had a restaurant and takeaway and that's where I started working there I think when I was 12 so it was kind of like you're surrounded by food at home you know my auntie was a very my auntie was a home cooking like amazing home cooked meals like I would say more authentic meals you know the stuff that people are not used to it's the stuff that I kind of post on my Instagram now these days and my dad was cooking I, I mean when he cooked for me he would also cook like more authentic dishes but 
to the general public, I, I would, at the time I would like, I would say this is fake Chinese food or it's westernized Chinese food, I would say. It is, it's become a thing, right? And I remember growing up, I was like, I was so embarrassed about it because customers would come in and be like, oh, I love like three in ones or like, so there was like chips, rice and curry sauce. I was like, I don't eat this stuff at all. <laughs> but obviously it was like, it created because this is what the customer wants, right? If the customer wants, you give them what they want and we will charge you for it. But, you know, when I look back now, I think, you know, I shouldn't have been like so embarrassed about it. I should have been like, well, look, it's, it's great that you love that and you come in here like nearly every day to eat that. But why don't you try this? You know, why don't you try maybe like Kung Pao chicken? You know, that's come from an, a region in China, like the Sichuan region or sweet and sour is also an authentic. You know, why don't you try something, you know, more regional cuisines? And, but obviously I was, I was a teenager at the time. I couldn't express my feelings in that way. Um, so yeah, I was just working there since I was 12. Um, then I went to university to study business uh, because I thought, you know, I was going to take over the business. And I think that would, would have been a good choice to study business and to, to do something with that. But uh, going to Shannon then in, to study hotel management, um, kind of halfway through the course, I realized, you know, I enjoy being in the kitchen. That's where I discovered uh, my, my love for food, I guess. Well, I think it was mainly because I couldn't cook and I was away from home. <laughs> and I just had to cook like really bad meals. Like I was eating pasta every day. Uh, like, yeah, it was bad. Looking back, I was like, shit, I really couldn't cook. But that just shows I was spoiled, you know, because I was surrounded by my dad's cooking and my auntie's cooking. And then when left to it myself, I was like, right, I want to cook, but I can't cook. So... I guess that's why the kitchen drew me in um, and I got into the industry then once I, I, I decided to, to, to graduate, uh, to finish the degree because I was halfway through and I, I realized I wanted to be a chef. So, but I didn't want to drop out because I was like, it'd be kind of pointless all that time kind of like spent at uni. I was like, look, I'll just finish it. You, you can always fall back with a business degree, even if the chefing doesn't work out, right? Um, but I guess 10 years later here, I am still cooking. So you know, after I graduated, I went to I went to Glen Eagles in Scotland because I saw a lot of the students were going there on the industry placements to the UK. Some were going to Dubai, uh, to Asia. And I guess I just wanted someone that I could like be close to home, still kind of, that had a good reputation. And Glen Eagles took me. Um, I spent a year there. And then I decided to move on because uh, they were buying in a lot of things. Um, like it was to their recipe, but they were outsourcing it to a factory. But I was kind of like, well, I came, I became a chef because I wanted to learn and make these things. So I decided to move to London. And that was around the Olympics time. And I worked at the Savoy. Um, I didn't really like the Savoy, to be honest, because I was in room service and stuff like that, and the foyer and afternoon tea, and I was like, mm, I became a chef, why am I making 400 sandwiches a day? You know? <laughs> it was a bit soul destroying, but you know, it was a good experience because now when I look back in it, you know, if I do make a sandwich myself now, I'm like, oh, that's not a fucking good sandwich. You know? <laughs> so I guess it's all a learning curve, but when you're young, you know, you want to do so much and you're like, no, this is, but yeah, I did my time there and then I moved on and decided, right, I really need to know how to cook. And <clears throat> everywhere I worked was was good. You know, they taught me a lot of standards and a lot of things, but 
I need to really cook. And I applied for like places all across uh, London, uh, mainly mission star places, actually all of them mission star places. Because I figured then like mission star had a high standard for, for a particular reason, right? And went on trials and I got job offers from various places like Ramsey's, um, there was Alain Ducasse, Joe Robuchon, I think Sketch. Uh, and then like they were all like really, really good places. And I didn't take any of them because I found this place. Um, I was looking at my, I woke up one morning and I was on Facebook and my friend posted uh, that where he was restaurant manager at the time, they just run two rosettes, two AA rosettes. Um, I mean, like a, a rosette's nothing compared to a Michelin star, but <clears throat> I, I looked at it and I was like, well, he's my friend and the, the, the place looked really interesting. It was nearby where I lived. And I messaged him saying, oh, that, that amazing, well done. Um, any chance I could come down, see what you're doing, you know, just out of curiosity. And he messaged me back. He goes, Kelvin, I think you'd love it here. So I was like, oh, okay. And I remember I got the bus down and I went into the kitchen and like the kitchen was like, it was a very old kitchen compared to all these other places in the city where it's all modern, massive brigade. But this place was very like, very like, I think it used to be a pub and it was like trying to change from a pub. So I remember going in and I met Jim, the head chef and uh, he was like, right, okay, prep these. And I was like, what are those? I, I've never seen these things in my life. I was like, it was a Jerusalem artichoke, right? But for me, it was the first time I've ever seen something like that before. So I was like, well, what is this? And obviously I was prepping them. And then I was like, oh, how should I do it? You know? And he was like, oh, you just peel them. Then you put them in, in some water with like lemon juice. So it stops from oxidizing. So I was like, okay, right. So as I was going all day, I was like, he was showing me more and more things. I was like, oh, this is really, really amazing place, right? Then Ken comes in, who's like, Jim was a sous chef. <clears throat> well, I said Jim was the head chef, but he was like kind of acting head chef, but sous chef. And Ken was like the actual head chef. And Ken's from Ireland, he's from Kerry. So he comes in like he's a um, really, really tall guy, like he's six foot something, like, but he's like a big friendly giant, you know? <laughs> and yeah, very calm person, very, very just nice, nice person. And we hit it off straight away, I think, because obviously, I think with the Irish connection and he saw my passion and my interest that I wanted to learn about food. I wanted to cook well. And yeah, he, we had a wine dinner that night. And it was, again, different from what I saw during the lunch service where I saw like a la carte. I saw a little bit of a tasting menu. I saw set menu as well. And then in the evening, they had a winemaker come over. I think it was Lebanese wine or Israeli wines, I think. If I, can, if I can remember correctly. And he created a, a menu to complement the wine. Not usually it's the wine complements the food, but to wine dinners, it's right. We, we like after I've got the job, I kind of participated in some of these wine tastings. And what it was is we'd sit down and we'd taste the wines. Well, we, we got really pissed by the end of it. <laughs> Well, because we never like kind of spat the wine back out. We always end up drinking. We end up drinking, tasting, and then writing down like kind of ideas. And then going back and then we're doing a, a, a tasting again. And then like, because you're a little bit tipsy, you're like, oh yeah, I think the ideas, you know, the, 
that you start flowing and everyone's becoming more loud and creative, then can kind of like through the tasting creates the menu. Because usually when you're at a restaurant, the chef will create a dish, you know, oh, this is what I want to make. And then he creates the dish and then he calls the sommelier to come in. And then the sommeliers will taste the food and then they decide a wine to complement that. So this is the reverse process, <clears throat> which was great. It was great to be part of that. And this is why it kind of appealed to me, this restaurant, uh, the Dysart Petersham, just outside of Richmond in London. I could see the potential of what it, what it could become. Um, and it was just kind of a really great place for me to learn. You know, there wasn't any egos there. Yeah, that so sounds spent... amazing. <laughs> like way over my head, this wine taste, like it must be a certain skill set to be able to match wine to, to food. It's it's not something that I would be familiar with. I mean, I'm from I'm from Derry. It's chicken ball specials here. Chicken ball specials and a pint of <laughs> pint of Coors Light. That's that's, <laughs> that's that's what we're I still work in hospitality as well, Kelvin. I'm I'm I work in my cousin's restaurant in, in Derry. Yeah. And uh so I'm in that environment. I'm in the hospitality environment. So it's a family business and it's been in Derry for 30, 30 years. And so I, I, I'm just laughing that you, I'm just hearing you describe your, your world of food and, and I'm thinking of my world of food. And it's... The thing about fine dining is I, I didn't grow up in that world. Do you know what I mean? So it's something that anyone can learn. And you learn by... <clears throat> tasting and going out to restaurants you know when I was living in London when I was working for Ken on my days off I would uh, go out to other I would, I would go on my own I would go to like Mission Star restaurants and have a tasting menu alone because I was, I was single at the time and it was the most like loneliest experience in the world like when you're in the restaurant and you're looking around the room and it's all like people on anniversaries or birthdays and there's you I mean I got looked after because Everyone thought I was a mission inspector because they're like, who's this guy on his own <laughs> who knows a lot about food because he's asking a lot of questions. Who's, so... <laughs> who's, this, who's this Asian guy with the Irish accent? He, he, don't, tr <laughs> don't trust him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the more you eat and the more you like, read, you learn about like flavor combinations and I guess things that work. You know, you can study wine yeah, and you know like specific regions would have characteristics in their wines you know but I guess it's about just tasting it and like I mean when I first did it I was like I, they don't know about that. what can you smell what can you taste and I was like <clears throat> just red wine you know or white wine Vinegar. But, yeah. <laughs> when when other people start saying things like oh you can smell like dark berries you know red berries or like you can smell a lot of stone fruit in there when people start saying it and then you smell it, then you can start to smell it as well. But obviously, when your nose is untrained, you're, it's lost, right? I mean, everyone's smell is different as well. Everyone's taste is different. So it's like art, doesn't it, really? It's just everybody has their interpretation of it and it's to do yeah, with taste so. as well. Yeah. The food that you cook now professionally isn't the type of food that, you know, you, you would have grown up with. And I was very interested in talking to you about you know the westernized Chinese food that's in our restaurants and takeaways in, in Ireland north and south and it's yeah. very popular and it's you know it's created an industry and Chinese food is seen as this type of food 
And it's, it is very, for our community, it can be disheartening to see our traditional authentic food not being kind of in the mainstream and not, you know, commercialized because it's very hard to get authentic Chinese food in Ireland. Do you feel yeah. that that would change in the future or do you think the Chinese takeaway and restaurant as it stands now is our future in that? Because I know the, the, the generations are not taking over their family business. So in years to come, it'll decline anyway because the, the generations below us don't want to be stuck in the kitchen for 16 hours a day or whatever <laughs> making chicken ball specials <laughs> spice bags <laughs> spice, that's the destination's favorite i'm telling you spice bags i went home like i think last christmas was the last christmas or the year before and amazon went spice bags and i was like what the fuck's a spice bag because <laughs> the spice bag in the uk is what all the home is there's it's drugs that the homeless people take <laughs> a bag of spice and you see them all like passed out outside mcdonald's That's so i was like what's i was like what's the spice bag <laughs> hilarious. But, we don't have them in the north we don't call them spice bags in the north that's oh, salt, and salt and pepper chips it's a salt and chili salt and chili salt chicken and pepper or salt and chili well yeah, we yeah. had this conversation with the the younger ones in the restaurant and some of them are from the south and we're talking about like the spice bag and what exactly is it <laughs> and they were saying oh it's it's like salt and chili chicken and chips all mixed up yeah 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 and i was like that actually sounds really tasty you know and then i, I remember my dad like picked me up from the air from dublin airport and he's driving me home from, and i was like he said do you want to go to your uncle's because my uncle still has, has his restaurant and he's got a pub attached to the side of it so he's like do you want to go to to have a pint and i was like yeah like, I was like, yeah, <laughs> I, want, I definitely want to begin this, you know? So we went to the pub and I was like, dad, can you make me, can you make me a spice bag? <laughs> I wanted to see what this thing was. And he brought it out and it was, it was, it was delicious. I have to say, like salt and pepper chicken, because I used to love eating salt and pepper chicken wings. Spicy chicken wings is what we used to call them on the menu. You know, just like chicken wings coated in like a crispy batter and then deep fried out seasoned with like salt peppers a little bit of chili powder some sugar a little bit of msg as well and then into the wok with garlic spring onions some onions and just quickly like kind of tossed and then into the like that was it that was amazing i love that i mean for me wow chicken wings that's how i love my chicken wings but the salt and pepper chicken that goes into the spice bag is like those the, the breast of chicken which has been like flattened out and then breaded so like what you find in maybe your sweet and sour chicken or your lemon chicken, that kind of chicken, again, deep fried and then seasoned with that same mix, stir fried like that, chopped up and then in with the bag of chips. And I guess I was shaking all about. And I guess that served with a little pot of curry sauce. I, 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 I would be happy with that, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I mean, it's... It has to be done. I mean, it's, uh, it's, I'm, I'm, it's... I'm thinking. I'm thinking about making it and posting it on my Instagram, just just for like the just for for a laugh. You know, because uh, well, I, I think you have to do it. I, I think you know what the spice bag is to Ireland is what chicken tikka masala is to the UK. You know, mm. everyone loves it, and I'm like, this is crazy that you know everyone's like, oh, when they think of a Chinese, then now it's like a spice bag. You know? yeah. I wonder who started it. I mean, who? I wonder who started a call that trend of calling it a spice bag. But this is the thing. It's like when one takeaway or restaurant does it, 
it, it, it goes around, you know. It's like we called something a three in one. It was chips, rice and curry sauce. Yes. <laughs> That's another southern thing because in the north, we just call it a special. <laughs> chips, curry sauce and fried rice. And then when obviously we're on the border with Donegal, there is in the yeah, border. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. there's people from Donegal comes in the restaurant asking for three and ones. And some of our staff are like, what's yeah, that? I have, no, yeah, I have no clue what you're talking about. Three and one. Yeah. Well, this, every Chinese guess. restaurant had to call it differently. So you just had to go because obviously you would know that wasn't your customer because they come in and ask for that thing with a different name. So you just go, what's in the dish? Tell me and we can make it. And then they were like, oh, it's this, this, and this. Like, oh, okay, yeah. Eight pounds, please, or eight euros. You know? <laughs> Makes me think of the story. I wonder who invented the chicken ball. I know. It's because like... <laughs> I think a few people would claim that. I was chatting to you. I was, I was doing... I was developing a documentary called Chinese Takeaway Kids. That's, that's how this podcast came. I was born because my, right. my background is documentary. And... I got a wee bit of funding to develop the documentary just before lockdown. And that's how I got chatting to people online. And, you know, and that's where I heard a lot, met a lot of people online. That's why I decided to do a podcast because I thought, you know what, these these stories need to be heard. So I was chatting to, I was doing a wee bit of filming with a guy. He's 50. He's actually born and Irish born. And I spent a little bit of time with that family and he'd taken over his dad's takeaway and we're talking about chicken balls and uh we're wondering if because he he had a feeling that his dad and his friend his uncle his family anyway invented the chicken ball but i'm sure a lot of families are claiming the the invention of the chicken ball but he said that he because the the irish love fish and chips you know the Mm -hmm. the the thick batter on the fish yeah so his dad and his uncle decided to copy that thick thick batter but with chicken so they started dicing up thick bits of chicken and then coating it in the thick batter. And yeah. he believes that his family <laughs> invented well, the chicken I, ball. <laughs> I th- no, I, th- I think I didn't answer the question about you on about authentic food. Would, do I ever see that changing? I mean, every time I go back to visit uh, Ireland now, if I go to Dublin, you can see that you can see there's more and more, uh, I guess, authentic restaurants. Like I think a lot of people are coming from the mainland China now as well. So there's a lot of regional food as well. So it there, it shows that there is opportunities. And I guess people, because I guess people travel, right? People have worked, they earn money, they go traveling abroad. And I guess by going to Asia, now they realize, oh, well, Asian food doesn't taste like chicken balls and whatnot. So, you know, a lot of people come back and they want maybe, they want Thai food or they want Vietnamese food. And, you know, they're both amazing cuisines as well. So, the, you know, I, I think the more people travel, the more people want and people understand about what authentic food is. But going back to the point about will the Chinese takeaway die? I hope not, because I think as much as I didn't like it at the time, it is part of who made me who I am. And it has given a lot of Asian families, uh, I guess, a ways to earn money, you know, it's 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 like symbolism, I guess, because it's like it symbolizes our community. That I, I, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> I think I think I know what you're saying, Kelvin. It's like a piece of history that you don't want to see dying. It's like traditional, and it's part of the culture of the, yes. the immigration to Ireland. And you, it would be sad to to see it decline. But 
I wanted to ask you as well, any plans of coming back to Ireland and starting <laughs> up on your own or? It's been on my mind. That's been on my mind for a while because <clears throat> I've been in the UK 10 years. So every time I come back home, I see the culinary scene in Ireland is changing. It's getting better. Ireland's always had amazing producers and produce. You know, I, I, Irish beef is some of the best beef in the world. You know, our vegetables grown in Ireland are amazing. Ireland is surrounded by sea. We've got amazing seafood. But if you think about like Irish cuisine, it's almost as bad as British cuisine, right? In terms of like comparing it to like French or Italian or Chinese or, you know, it's not that flavorful, I would say, but it's got great produce. That's the thing. It's hearty. There's a time and a place for it, you know. Um, my thoughts are because of how Chinese food is represented in Ireland, I've always kind of wanted to come back and cook something a bit more authentic. Um, but before that, I want to work in Asia. And I'm planning to move, I'm, I'm moving to Hong Kong next year. Uh, I got an offer to move to Hong Kong. <clears throat> so when the opportunity came and all of this obviously on my mind, I was like, this is a no brainer. This is like timing. You know, I think it's, it's the universe coming together. It's like, it's the perfect time of everything. And I will spend some time in Hong Kong. <clears throat> I'll be cooking the restaurant where I will be cooking. I'm not going to say where uh, yet, but um, it's, it's modern Cantonese. Um, so I'll go there. And I think just being in Hong Kong city, you know, being there will going out to eat, you know, I'm going to learn so much, you know, I'm just going to embrace everything. When I'm in Hong Kong, oh, maybe I'll fly to Saigon or I'll fly to KL, you know, and I definitely want to visit Malaysia more because that's where I was born. And also mainland China, you know, I want to go to where my great grandparents came from uh, and where my grandparents, because one side came from Fujian, the other one comes from like Chaosan. So I, I, I want to visit the birthplace. I want to see where my bloodline comes from. Then after all of that, I guess I'll know 100% what I want to do. I would love to come back to Ireland and do it, open a restaurant, but I feel the only place I could do it is maybe Dublin. Because I think a big, big city is where the money is. Um, it's more diverse, you know. I mean, I'd love to do it in Navin. <laughs> I don't think Navin's ready for that flavor yet. <laughs> well, Kelvin, that is an amazing opportunity. I mean, Hong Kong is where my parents are from. So I always have a special place in my heart for Hong Kong. And what a, what a place to train and, and cook and taste the food. I mean, it's. I mean, obviously I'm biased because my parents are from Hong Kong and that's where I spent a lot of my childhood. But it is the best country in the world for food, I think. I know I'm biased, but it has to be. I hear a lot of people saying the place to be for food, I think. I think, I think in Asia, people would say probably Hong Kong or Singapore up there, the two places. Amazing opportunity. Uh, so you'll be moving next year? That's the plan. So I'm in the process of um, they're applying for the visa for me. Uh, which could take up to six months. So I said to them, I go, look, <clears throat> you know, I'm still working for my current employer. So I'll, let, me, let me work this year out with him, um, work until Christmas, then go back to Ireland, spend some time with my family for Christmas, and then move to Hong Kong in the new year. <clears throat> That's the wow. plan. I mean, ho hopefully wow. there's no more lockdowns or anything oh, like that. Can't even, don't even want to say the word. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I think what we've learned 
this past year is that nobody knows anything and you know just be flexible in your life for for changes because that's that's what we've been showing that we nothing's for certain isn't it well the pandemic is i think made a lot of people like reflect because you had nothing else to do right yeah i mean if it wasn't for this pandemic i wouldn't have i would have stayed in the uk at this restaurant i probably would would have moved on to somewhere else and probably cook westernized food again but because of this it's made me it's allowed me to go back home to ireland and to to spend to feel like a kid to feel like a child again you know because dad was cooking for me every day he's making like new, fresh noodles i wake up and there's no reason noodles on the table and then he'd be steaming bow as well and then he'd be frying things for lunch i'm like oh jesus christ dad you know <laughs> he was just happy to have me home i think and my brother yeah. was like my brother was happy as well because he was like oh that hasn't cooked like this in a while. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Asian parents show love through food, isn't it? It's just like spoiling people with food instead instead of verbally showing. And have you ever asked them for a recipe? I don't know if you ever asked your parents for a recipe to, or they don't give you measurements. It's like when I, when, I, when, I, when I video call my dad, I'm like, dad, I want to make this dish. Uh, what do I need? And you just go, okay, you need this, you need this, you need it. I'm like, how much? Just put in, you know, and you'll know. I'm like, I, I, I want that. <laughs> that is so true, Kelvin. I do that with like... my daughter when I'm t- teaching her now. I teach my daughter how to cook, and she's all, You never tell me how much. I'm all, You just do this, just pour it in. I would say, channeling the, channel the spirits of your That's ancestors. so funny. That's so they'll funny. T- they'll, they'll scream when you, when you have to have enough. <laughs> Yeah, when I was laughing, I was listening to one of your your podcasts. I think it was phenomenal in Asian, and or I think it might have been Chinese chip year. I can't remember, but you were you were craving the ginger vinegar pig's feet dish. Yeah, <laughs> I was laughing my head off. I'm going, you were looking for all the ingredients, and and somebody had said that's that's for pregnant woman. Yeah, it's for pregnant woman. It's like because I knew that it was a post. What do you call them? Postpartum dish or something like that. Postpartum, yeah. Yeah. And that's what I guess a lot of Cantonese families would have that. That's the, a very famous dish. But one that my mom's side of the family would eat was um, Fujian red wine chicken uh, with, with misua noodles. And this one is made of red, red yeast. So the wine is red in color. And my dad, he makes it because he obviously learned it from my mom and my auntie. And then, and I remember like posting it and I was, I was eating it and I posted it on Instagram. And this is a dish that you wouldn't wouldn't see. It's not very popular. <clears throat> and a lot of like people from Fujian province, like the diaspora, there was a lot of Americans, Australians, people in the UK were like, oh my God, I haven't seen that dish in a long time. And then that got me thinking, I was like, you know, because everyone knows the mainstreams that the, everyone knows Cantonese food because that was the first wave coming out. And now everyone kind of knows Sichuan food because that's become trendy. I guess the next wave now, what is it? Uh, Xi'an food, you know, those hand-pulled noodles, the, the kind of Northwestern China. Maybe the next craze could be Hunan or, you know, who knows? But <clears throat> I thought about it and I was like, you know, this is stuff that I just ate, it was just home food. So the hard thing for me to think about now is, do you sell it on a menu for profit? And will people buy it? Whereas for me, it was just home home cooking, you know? I guess people will come for and try it, but how do you make it more like restaurant mm. home food? This I will mean, always play that, in my mind. Yeah, that's that's the thing. It's it's looking at your market, and I think if you're looking for like 
the mainstream community to fall in love with that food it would be ambitious but I'd say that that type of home cooking traditional food you would have your clientele but it would be would be people like us who who who, 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 who's used to it there'll be a secret menu that's that's what I'll do I'll put I'll put I'll make a seat I have my mainstream stuff and I have a secret menu and then they'll be like if you know you know you know you come in you like you wink at me and be like oh right, I give you I give you the special menu <laughs> uh, yeah that that happens and in, in, in some of the restaurants here there is menus with obviously Chinese writing with the authentic Chinese dishes yeah that Chinese people go and eat but the problem with people like myself second generation we can't fucking read the menu I can't read I always take it I'm like I don't read I'm like <laughs> And I don't even speak it, you know, I'm like, oh. <laughs> you speak Cantonese, or what What family language did you grow up with, or like your parents? Um, my parents would speak Mandarin to each other. Um, but my dad could speak, I think he spoke five dialects. He could speak Mandarin, wow. Cantonese, his own dialect was Teochew. I think he could speak a little bit Hokkien. He could speak to everyone, like, you know. That's pretty impressive. What about yourself, yeah. Kelvin? Can did you, what was your first language when you were growing up? Did you communicate in English pa- or? English. My parents wanted me to learn English, um, which is kind of a shame. I'm kind of regretting it now. But I can understand Mandarin. I can understand, I guess, people who are overseas speaking Mandarin or people from Malaysia who speak Mandarin. You put me in a room with mainland Chinese people speaking Mandarin. I'm like, what the fuck are they saying? Because it's, it's so thick, you know, but that's real Mandarin, right? You know? <laughs> Cantonese, I, I have zero Cantonese. I do remember they used to send me to Cantonese school in Dublin to study it, but I was I was sitting there, I think I must have been like 12, and I was in like the baby class. I was like sitting there and all like little four-year-olds around me was like, what am I doing here? I'm like, I just I felt so embarrassed. I just I just quit. I was like, Yeah, so it's really difficult so- to learn yeah. the, the language for that starting off at that age when you didn't hear it growing up. That would have been well, really difficult. For me, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and learn it now when I move to Hong Kong. <laughs> it's gonna be so hard. But the only Cantonese I know is I know how to order all the dim sum and I know how to count to three. So I think I won't go hungry. I think I'll be all right. I won't starve. You know, I might get lost, uh, but I won't starve. Sorry, McDonald's have a numbering system, Kelvin. So you you'll be all good. You just point at the number. And McDonald's and you'll be all right. It's all self-service, I think, now, anyway. No, I, I definitely not. I'm, I'm going to try and learn it. Yeah, the, the thing was, is I, I was studying Mandarin. I was taking, like, lessons in Mandarin for the past year. And then this move to Hong Kong comes up. I'm like, shit, I should have been studying Cantonese. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say you'd pick it up in no time when you move I there. think so. You know, because yeah. I'm definitely going to try and learn it when I'm there because all I'm sure all the staff are locals, you know. Uh, and I wanted to go down to the marketplace. I wanted like haggle with the, the people who are selling the fish and the, fe- the oh, veg. Yeah. I want to. I, I want to engage. I want to obviously go to restaurants that are like only visited by the local people. So I think by doing all of these things, you're gonna have to pick up the basic uh, mm. words and stuff. And I will try and take lessons while I'm there. And I guess being in a city, when you hear it all the time, it's easier to learn it yeah. rather than looking at a YouTube video. And speaking to it like in a mirror or something, you know. But as you're there, you can kind of practice it on people. I'm sure yeah. when I'm there, they, they want to practice English on me. Yeah. But I'm going to be like, no, Cantonese, right? So maybe I also need, to, maybe I should find a girlfriend who doesn't speak English. And then they'll have me. <laughs> 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 oh, 
But then like there's no choice but to speak Cantonese, right? You know. Put that in your profile, Kelvin. Must not speak my, English. On my Tinder profile. <laughs> Cantonese only, please. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Malaysia is one of those places as well as a melting pot of cultures because I, I grew up with a lot of Malaysian aunties and uncles here in, in, in Derry that, that spoke Cantonese. In Malaysia, they can speak, that's why they can speak so many different dialects because they'll obviously have their own family dialect. My mm -hmm. dad's was Teochew, but you know, you would have friends who speak Hokkien. I think Hokkien and Teochew are kind of similar, not to, you know, they can kind of communicate with each other. And then Cantonese, you know, there's a family who speak Cantonese or I think you see my dad started cooking when he was 12, but he was cooking underneath Cantonese chefs. So that's he probably learned. how he learned Cantonese. Mm. And obviously probably watching TV shows, you know, dramas and things like that. And then Mandarin is obviously the, <clears throat> the common language, I guess. And then he would obviously speak Malay because you're in Malaysia. Yeah. And, but he didn't have English. His English isn't great. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, he had broken English. E even today, like, I feel his English isn't great, but from having, like, no education mm -hmm. to going abroad overseas with no English to opening a restaurant and having a business, you know, it's amazing, right? Mm. You know, you, look, you think about that, and, like, it's, yeah, yeah during those yeah. times as well. I mean, he didn't have to go abroad. He could have stayed in Malaysia. He had two restaurants and one in Singapore, but... Mm. Yeah. Your dad's journey to Ireland sounds slightly different from a lot of people's journeys to Ireland. A lot of people moved because they didn't have much choice back home in terms of employment. Yeah. Your dad it was it was it was a choice to to move to to Ireland because he he did you say he owned restaurants in Malaysia? Yeah, well he yeah. He, had, he had like a couple of business partners, but two in Malaysia, one in Singapore. Because <laughs> my dad my dad comes from a family of. I guess I come from I come I come from a food family. I think my great grandfather on my dad's side, uh, he emigrated to Southeast Asia. Now I think the reason being was because poor, you know, poverty, extreme poverty, maybe communism, maybe trying to run away from that as well. But back then, you know, I think China had a famine, so you know they were hungry. They had no choice but to leave, right? So a lot of Chinese people went to Southeast Asia. You know, that's why you have the diaspora of like. In the Philippines, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, Thailand, you know, you know, Vietnam. And there's a lot of similarities in Southeast Asian cooking because people bring in their dishes with them, right? And he settled down. I think he like spent some time first in Singapore, then he went to Thailand, and then eventually just settled down in Malaysia. And he was making noodles. That was his thing. He just started making hand, you know, fresh noodles, which <clears throat> got passed down to my grandfather and his his brother. I think the brother took the noodle business and my grandfather took the, the shop, like the corner shop, the sundry shop. But then my grandfather knew a Hokkien man and he was like, can you teach me how to make Hokkien noodles? And it's the yellowish kind of egg noodles. So he taught him how to make those. And then he opened, a, set up a bean sprout farm because noodles and bean sprouts, you know, you have to have them both together, right? And then obviously the kids, so my dad and my uncle and my aunties, they were all growing up and they all had to help out in that business. I think my grandparents had to wake up at four in the morning, four or five in the morning to start making noodles, right? And then the kids would wake up at six before going to school to kind of help pack the noodles and then run to school after, you know? So, I mean, it was still tough for them growing up, you know? It was, they, I mean, they had money. They weren't rich. 
they had you know they, they had enough money to kind of do whatever they needed to do but they had to work hard for that right you know yeah it sounds like so, you have a long history of food and you're it's in the blood basically i think yeah like it is in the blood um, yeah even the fact that you went and studied hospitality and probably in your head that you would end up in the kind of management side or the front of house side you ended up in the kitchen it's it was something that <laughs> can escape and and i've actually spoke to a few families kelvin that you know were second generation so their parents were the immigrants and had the chinese takeaways and then the second generation you know the crack with parents pushing their kids at school so that they don't have to do kind of hard labor so they become more you know professional jobs so i've spoken to a few families who were born in, in northern ireland and they they said that you know they grew up helping out in the family takeaway but their parents pushed them educationally so they ended up at university studying different things but the the mad thing is they ended up coming home and and taking over the the family business it's sort of like something that they were just drawn (laughs) they tried you know they tried the whole university thing moving away and going you know more nine to five shirt and tie office jobs but for some reason they were pulled back into the takeaway and it was two brothers i was chatting to two brothers they they both run their own takeaway now after going away and going to university very interesting that doesn't it yeah i i I think food always brings people home because i even see that in a lot of like pop-ups in london now there's a lot of like these places popping up and like some people are saying chicken rice or roast meats and they don't come from well did they come from food they probably do the parents had the takeaway but they always say it's like oh i spent like the past 10 years in banking or finance or whatnot and food is obviously because they did it, I think, because they wanted to please their parents, right? Because you had to be an accountant, a doctor, or a lawyer, right? That was it. If you were that, your parents were so happy. Oh, my dog, my son, my... You know? <laughs> but I guess they did it for them. And then they hate their life, maybe, you know? Because, I mean, if it's not for you, it's not for you. And food is a big part of all our lives, you know? If Especially if you grew up in the takeaway, you know what food is about, so... Yeah, I guess it does bring people home. And I, maybe maybe it might be because the parents are still running the takeaway in restaurants and they're getting on, you know, they're older now. So to see them struggling, you know, my, my dad still works like, it's crazy. <laughs> so my uncle still has a restaurant. I think my uncle wants me to take it over. He's, he keeps on saying, he's like, oh, I want to sell it. I want to sell it. But no, no one's giving me a good price. But, you know, there's always a kitchen there for you. I'm like, yeah, oh. <laughs> yeah but I, I don't want to take it over. And... Mm cook that food I wouldn't mm-hmm. be ha- I know I could do it and do it okay but I do have an idea in my head I'm like if I take over that place I'll cook European food I cook Irish food I cook like western food mm-hmm. yeah because it's what I trained in but I'll make it more like a bistro or brasserie mm-hmm. because couldn't do it like too fancy but you could do it well you know like simple but really really tasty I think yeah, people yeah. Would, would love that and yeah he's got the pub beside it the pub's got great trade as well so the thing is, it's like people would come in for their pints, you know, they, they come in for one pint while they, they, they ordered a takeaway and they're like, oh, I'll have a pint. Right away. They're having like six pints, you know. What a business head your uncle has putting a pub beside his restaurant. What a man, what a man. <laughs> and then all, all, everyone that goes to the pub and drinks, they always say, oh, I need, can I place, like they'll order their food and they'll just be sitting in the kitchen. So they'll never forget and they'll always take their food and they go home, you know. It's, that's, that's it goes brilliant. hand in hand right it does it does well those restaurants 
Next yeah. time I'm in Navan, I'm, I'm I'm coming down to visit your uncle. And I think I was in Navan years ago. You know, you know the Slain concert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I remember uh, the Rolling Stones were playing one year, and the executive chef for the, the Rolling Stones came in, walked into the sacred, some like American or Canadian guy, and he was like, um, "I've had a couple of recommendations that this is the best Chinese takeaway," and I was like, "Okay." And then I was like, okay, what's this guy want? You know what I mean? And he was like, I want, I want like spring rolls. I want like jumbo spring rolls. And I was like, what? Who, who, for who? And he was like, I work for the Rolling Stones, okay? I work for the catering. And we're, we're headlining Slain. And I was like, yeah, I know. Okay, I know that. And I was like, I want spring rolls like this big. And I was like, that's fucking huge. He was, like, <laughs> 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 was like, the size of a 500 ml bottle of Coke, right? And I was like, just hold on a second. Let me let me talk to my dad. My dad's in the kitchen, so I, <laughs> I go into the kitchen. My dad's there's a guy who wants to buy his, like 500 spring rolls. My dad's like 500 spring rolls, and I'm like, yeah, but not our spring rolls because our spring rolls were like um, they were like we get two in a portion. They were like they were not big, but they weren't like small either. But this guy wanted a <laughs> fucking huge thing, and dad comes down right, and that's like <laughs> he looks at the guy and he's like. How big? And the guy, the guy tells him how big. My dad's like, okay, how much? And he's like, 500. My dad's like, straight away in his mind, he's like, currently like calculating the money. He's like, eh, da, 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 da. and he's like, I can't remember what he said, but he's like, this is the price. The guy just whipped, took out like cash. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> my dad's like, what do you need it for? And he's like, oh, we need it for Friday or something. Like today it was Monday. And my dad's like, okay, no problem. That's it. So yeah, I remember like he made them and then. <laughs> Delivered them like the Slain Castle. When we go into security and they're like, uh, what are you here for? Got 500 spring rolls in the back. <laughs> what a story, Kelvin. My, oh my God. You provided spring rolls for the Rolling Stones. That's hilarious. Kelvin, I wanted to talk to you a little more about diversity in, in Ireland and, and what it is to be, you know, Irish and carrying you know, different national or ethnic minority backgrounds it sparked a thought because when i read your instagram you'd wrote that we're rare as the leprechauns <laughs> or it's just as hard to find a leprechaun than than an irish chinese yeah yeah i, I was very it, it sparked a thought because it just reminded me and how unrepresented our community are and it was something that i kind of knew anyway growing up but it's even it's a stronger thought now and and obviously coming from a documentary background that that's what I wanted to do to represent our community in a, in a positive light and that's when I started you know chatting to people like us who who spent all our lives here and we have these accents and we look like this I just wanted to you know pick your brain about it and what is it to be you know to be Irish and how, how you would identify and how do you think about it much that would you describe yourself as Irish Chinese Malaysian or well <clears throat> when I grew up in Ireland obviously I knew I was different because all my friends were, were white, but they never made me feel different. But you still, because you had a Chinese takeaway and whatnot, you knew, I knew I was Chinese, but I also felt Irish, if that makes sense, because Ireland was where I grew up and I was, where I studied and all my friends were, you know, till, till this, to this day, anytime I go back home, my friends from primary school are still, when I meet them down in the pub, it's like, I never left, you know, it's, uh, even though I don't speak to them, you know, I can go in years and years without talking to them. But when I see them in the pub, it's like, it's never changed. So that to me is home, right? 
I'm obviously my dad is my family's there. You know, my uncle's there, my dad and my brother are there. So family is is there. Family is where your home is, right? And but in terms of like when people when I meet people and they say, Where are you from? I say Ireland, right? But then they'll say, But well, where are you really from? And then you're like, Okay, well, I was born in Malaysia, but I I moved out when I was three, you know. So you'll always feel that you'll never be 100 percent accepted in that sense, right? When people say, because you don't, oh, because Ireland's associated with like quite and Catholic, you know, that's Ireland. And it has been for a long, long time. But because it's becoming more and more diverse now, right? How do I feel about that? You know, it, it didn't really bother me for many, many years. But I guess the like you said, the older I get now, the more I think about it because there wasn't representation. You didn't see that on TV. Obviously, last year we had our Lord Mayor Hazel Chu, who was from uh, Hong Kong. Her her parents are from Hong Kong, and and she oh, she I... was born in. Did you not, did you not know this? No, <laughs> Kelvin. I... <laughs> it, was, it was massive news at the time. The first Lord Mayor from an ethnic minority background in Dublin, Hazel really? Chu. <laughs> Uh, I need, I need, I need to look into this. <laughs> like, to be honest, like, I, I, I don't, I don't really follow like news back home to be honest. Because what was it? I, I didn't even know like, um, what was it at the time? I think gay marriage was being there. There was the referendum for that. I didn't even know that was going on until I saw it on Sky News saying like Ireland has now legalized gay marriage. I was like, what? <laughs> you know, that's something I thought I would never see as well because how strong the Catholic Church was. Yeah. You know the influence, so it's just showing that Ireland's changing. A yeah, lot, yeah, very fast. So I guess when you're, I mean, you're you're a chef, so you work like on sociable hours, and you're probably spend a lot of your time in the kitchen, and then fifteen hours a day. Yeah, and <laughs> you don't if you don't follow news. I mean, so, the only the only, I, I get more news from Instagram than I do actually watch. <laughs> <laughs> I get the important stuff because I find a lot of news negative. I don't find like. Your news is never really positive, unless it's like the Olympics time or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then you're just like, oh, this country mm-hmm. won gold. And that is positive. But apart from that, most of the time, it's all negative. And mm-hmm. especially during the pandemic, that was so negative. And it was like, I just had to just switch off. If it was very important, someone will post about it on my Instagram and I'll, yeah. I'll find out about it. Yeah. You know? No, no, I completely <laughs> get you. I mean, a lot of, I know a lot of people who just switch off when it comes to news because it is quite draining following news because it is obviously it's 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 negative and it won't be reporting news unless it's extremely kind of tragic or whatever but no we we did have good news in Ireland last year <laughs> we had our first ethnic minority uh, lord like ethnic minority background lord mayor hazel chu her parents were immigrants from hong kong but she was born and raised in in ireland so there was a, a lot of excitement around her and, and obviously the Chinese community and, and Ireland had got quite excited about, you know, finally seeing somebody that looked like themselves being represented yeah. in, in government and politics. But, you know, I suppose the other side of that is it was it, it was exciting to see that. But a lot of the focus on that news was her her, her Chinese background and, and anything I read was about her Chinese background and there was a lot of online hit in that around that really? time and there was so there was a lot of racism and and she had spoken up about that but i guess i guess it brought it out in the open and and and, and the public when when those conversations had to be had to be had so racism is always there 
you know i think it's always going to be there it's never going to go away well not in our time and that's the sad reality of it right i think by but by having these conversations now <clears throat> it will affect someone's generation down the line that things become normalized and not like because it's uncomfortable right nobody likes talking about it it's going to upset this side and that side's going to be angry or whatnot but you know it's always there because of maybe education systems uh stereotypes being portrayed things like that uh, no but it takes an event that's what i'm trying to say <clears throat> it's like that person was elected and then all this hate came out because of that you know it's there already but no one was saying it but because she's put in position or whatever whatever was said about her same like the covid pandemic you know when <clears throat> this came from china i knew straight away i was like oh my god like all the the racist shit I had growing up is going to come back. Do you know what I mean? I was like, yeah, I just, yeah, it's always there, and it just takes an event to mm-hmm. just kind of like take take it out, and yeah, yeah we do but, need to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, the the sad thing is, it's still going on, and obviously, it's not exclusive to America, but a lot of it is happening in America. The random attacks on people from the yeah. Asian background doesn't matter what. Asian background if you know it's it's not you know it's not just the Chinese community that's been affected it's all the Asian communities and there isn't really a day where you go on social media or whatever and you just hear another attack or another incident and there is a point where you just switch it off and that can be very draining as well because you've probably followed the same social circles right and this person will post it, and that person will post it, and that person, and then it's like the same story going around and around. So it's almost like an echo chamber, and you feel like, oh, you know. So sometimes even going on social media can be draining. One positive thing that came out of the anti-Asian racism was the community got together and and showed solidarity for each other, where you wouldn't have seen that voice before oh. before <laughs> no, no, no. pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> the positive thing that came out. I mean, a lot of organizations and you know, people were just coming out and showing support for each other. It's sad that I had to take that to bring people together. <clears throat> but it, that is, like you said, the silver lining to it, I guess, because it's, yeah. Yeah. People, yeah. But, and I guess, I guess it's a generational thing as well, because we, we can speak about these things. <clears throat> you know, we, we're not afraid to speak about it. Our mindsets are different than our parents or our grandparents. So we're very open, you know, and, and also, I think because of things like BLM, you know, you you look at how they protested or, you know, the languages that they used to these things. So you're like, oh, okay, you know how to talk about it. You know how to, you can relate to it. I mean, I'm not saying it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. So it's that I think that what they have is a lot worse because it goes back a long, long time, right? There's a longer history, yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> but I guess it's it helps, you know, it helps that you can, you know, you know how to talk about it mm-hmm. to other people. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Kelvin. You mentioned that, you know, our parents' generation, and I talk about it a lot in our podcast, that, that generation of our parents who emigrated to, to Ireland, they s- accepted that they were the foreigners, they were coming into somebody else's country. So they felt that they couldn't speak up about it and it wasn't in their kind of culture to call it out. I mean, they, they just took it. They just... Mm-hmm. You know, the discrimination that they faced on a day-to-day basis in some areas, 
they accepted it as part of their lives and you know they kept their heads down and they just worked through it and you know it's the generations now like ourselves and even even the generations below us we're no longer accepting any of it and we're no longer keeping quiet about it so you know it's on us to kind of to represent because our, our parents generation for decades took that discrimination as part of their lives and it's very sad you know that that was a reality for them it is and uh, i remember i don't know if i should tell the story but i kind of i kind of i kind of do want to tell the story you, ha- you have to tell you have to tell now <laughs> <laughs> so um i was on a night out i came home to visit ireland for christmas right and i went out and i went out of the town I remember coming leaving the club and i was trying to get into the residence bar of a hotel i used to work in because wanted more drinks Went in there, obviously, the, I couldn't remember who the guy working reception was. It's been so long. And the security didn't know who I was because I don't live there anymore. So they were like, no, you're not getting in. I was like, oh, okay, cool, whatever. I'll get my chip. I'll go up to the fish and chip shop. I'll get a batter sausage and chip and I'll go home, do you know? So we were kind of walking past the club. So people are still kind of pouring out. And I remember there was a vanguard on the corner and her partner was across the road, right? They're obviously just watching, see if there's any people fighting. And I remember walking past and there was a group literally just standing in front of her. And one of them said something like fucking Ching Chong or something like that to me. And I stopped and I looked and I looked at her, the police. She looked at me and I go, do you hear that? And then she looked away because she looked away and I was a little bit drunk. I, I felt like so angry, you know, because that's the police, you know, that's the people who's supposed to protect you, right? So the fact that she ignored me or tried to like avoid an uncomfortable situation really triggered me. And triggered me more because I was drunk. <laughs> so I went, I confronted her and I was like, are you going to do anything about that or what? You know, you clearly heard that. You looked at me, you know, you're turning away. And she's like, trying to, she's like, just go home, just go home. You're drunk, you're drunk. I'm like, I know I'm drunk, but you heard what he just said to me. That's not acceptable. So why are you trying to get, tell me to go away? And then obviously her partner come over and he's like, what's going on? You know, you, you're getting loud, you, you, you know, you're trying to like calm me down. I'm like, well, of course I'm going to be fucking angry and I'm being racially abused, you know, that will fucking make me angry. And then they're like, right, just go home, just go home. So eventually I'm like, right, okay. So I'm like, I'm really I'm raging at this point. I'm like, so I'm trying to get a taxi, all the taxis are coming down the street, but they're all full. So I'm like opening every taxi door. And he's, they're all like, we're full. So I'm slamming every door up and down the street. Now at this point, they're like, right, you're causing disturbance and whatnot. I'm like, right, and what are you going to do about it? Because I'm getting a bit smart. I'm getting a bit like, <laughs> what are you going to do about it? And then he's like, we're going to take you down to the barracks. I'm like, all right, let's go. Come on. And I'm like, <laughs> so I get into the car. I drive down to the barracks. And um, we walk in. And I'm like, can I call someone? And they're like, who do you want to call? And I'm like, I want to call my uncle. I want to call Dig. Because everyone knows my uncle in town, right? I'm like, I want to call Ding. And then they're like, all right, okay. And then I rang my uncle, I'm like, I'm in the police station. Can you come down again? <laughs> but then I want to put that on the phone. I'm like, am I going to go into the cell? And then they're like, what? And I'm like, well, I'm here now. So you might as well put me in there now. And then they're like, the woman that was behind the desk is like, you've got some lip on you. I'm like, yeah, well, you know what? I've been fucking racially abused tonight, so I don't give a fuck. So they put me in until my uncle came. And then <laughs> uncle was like, apologize to them I kind of didn't want to and I was like but when he tells you you got to do it I'm like I'm sorry 
You know, it wasn't even like a heartfelt. It was like, just like, I'm sorry. And then it was just like, he took me out. And then he's like, what happened? So I told him the story. And he, he was like, we, well, we, we, first we went back to his pub. All the Christmases had gone by this point. It was just him, the bar manager and me. So we kept on drinking more pints of Guinness. And then he was like, look, you know, you shouldn't have reacted that way, but I understand why you reacted that way. I obviously, I took the piss. I went a bit too far. But he said, he goes, sometimes it's hard to control emotions because he then told me a story about him when he was studying in Dublin. So this was, a, what, 80s, around the 80s at that time. And he went into a fish and chip shop. Um, again, the guy came in, racially abused him, called him all sorts of names. And the guy was kind of standing at the door. So my uncle then received his fish and chips, was walking out. And my uncle's quite tall. He's like six foot something. And he used to go to the gym a lot. So. And then he just paused, looked at the guy, took his fish and chips and just smashed it in his face. And then just ran away. <laughs> so, yeah, you go, sometimes you, just, you know, you know how to pick your fights, you know? Yeah, that's I mean, that only happened there a Christmas past, did you say? I think it was last year or the That's, year before. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's recent enough, and yeah, to hear that it's quite, you know, it's it's a difficult thing to go through. And I'm sorry you had to go through that, but you, I think, I hundred percent think you're right. You you didn't let it go because what upset me, what upset me the most wasn't the ching chong because I had that shit as a kid. So you you call me that, it just goes in, and goes out. But it was the fact that she saw, she heard it, and she ignored mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. That's what upset me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because to her probably it was like not worth like your your that happening to you wasn't worth in my opinion it was like she didn't want to deal with it because she they they're probably not trained enough to deal with it Maybe. or she didn't want to deal with it so she was trying to just diminish your feelings about it and and sort of like go home you're drunk and you know mm. trying to get away with doing it and I'm glad you did something about it because too often you know our community has been racially attacked and have been you know haven't had the kind of platform or the channels to to report it because it isn't something I mean there's a lot of people in the community just say ignore it you know that that is the kind of that was the standard way of dealing with things before just just ignore it and that's and that's not the way you deal with things. It's it's not good enough anymore. It might have been in our parents' generation. We'll just keep quiet, just just take it and, and get on with it. But no, not now. It's like we should get no, we should get that out there to the younger generations to it's like zero for me it's zero tolerance now. And I yeah. think that I've only gotten that in the past couple of years. Like I would have ignored things like racial yeah. abuse before, but I have I, I literally have zero to- tolerance for it. And Do you think yeah. it's because you've got family now that your tolerance is now because you're thinking about their generation? Yes, in a way. Everything I do, every uh, all the work I do in terms of you know any creative stuff I do for the community, it is for the next generation because I, I've grown up here and you know I, I sort of feel like well, I'm in an older generation now that everything I do is, is for the generations coming up so that they don't face... The things that you know we would have faced when we were younger and also not only because i have family it's because i think i have the confidence now to to call it out uh, i think it might have been just more most, most certainly this past year 
with the whole BLM movement and you know the conversations out there and the whole anti-Asian racism that's going on this past year as a result of the pandemic for sure I, I feel that I have a voice I feel yeah. like you know I'm more in tune with what's happening and now I just have just zero tolerance for any and yeah. any racial discrimination and that could be just microaggressions or people who who might think it's okay to ask you know as you said before but now where where are you where are you really from that that to me is offensive you know question yeah. your yeah. <laughs> your answer is never good enough for them and that for people who are asking first of all they it's, don't it's it's, it's it's a tricky one though mm. because i don't think they mean it maliciously you know they don't yeah. they don't mean it in a racist way but it does come off as racist and it, it is it's, it's hard depends because on I, the person as well doesn't it it, it does it, it depends yeah. on the tone they say it as well yeah because i think you, you you know by someone's tone if they mean it quite like negatively and then if, if they say it like that and i'm like oh this guy's a racist arsehole i'll play with them a bit i'm like i'm from navin and then i'll go like more specific and they're like no but wait where, where, where are your parents from I'm like oh they were born in malaysia you know and, uh, <laughs> But I kind of mess with those kind of people a little bit, but yeah. Some I, mean, I think some people. I th I think I've even been guilty of that myself. I think saying things like that. Where, where are you from? You know. Mm -hmm. But I don't I never mean it like mm. you don't look. I you know it's kind mm -hmm. of like oh, where, where are you from? I think it's mm -hmm. more of a curiosity thing. Yeah. But I do understand it can be frustrating. It's, it's, mm. it's a tricky. I one think now. I think it's the accent that actually gets people the most. I mean, they they're not, and that all comes down again to the representation thing. People like us are not seen. So mm. our accents are strange, you know, when people see people yeah, like us. Yeah, they hear my accent. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, but what's the, that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I suppose you're getting that double whammy when you're, you live and work in England. So not only your, your, your background is Chinese Malaysian, you grew up in Ireland, so, and, and you're living in England. So it's very, you know, difficult for people to understand that, you know, people like us are all over the world. So yeah. I don't really get why it's a big deal anymore or why it's such a, a surprise still in 2021 that people travel, people, you know, move about in the world and, you know, we are all from different backgrounds. It's very strange. Yeah. I, I think it's like, like you say, it's just a lack of representation, you know. Because what you see on TV is just the generic things. Mm. I don't even see even Asian people on TV, like many. No, not in Especially, terms of Irish in, in media. No. Yeah. Well, Irish well, media. There's, 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 the, there's a chef, no? Quan Chi. Yeah. Is, isn't it? yeah. I've he, heard of him. I've TV. heard of him, yeah. I know you're on Instagram together, but do you know each other personally? or? We've, we've messaged a few times. And I was actually meant to meet him. Like, he said to me, he goes, when you're in Dublin, we should meet for dim sum. And I'm like, yeah, definitely. But I haven't arranged that yet. Obviously, the next time I'm back home, I'll give him a message and we'll try and meet up. But yeah, it's great seeing him on TV, you know, cooking. Because he cooks like a lot of the kind of takeaway foods and whatnot. But he's trying to like make it simple and healthier at home. So it's good. It's good to see that. Um, but the thing is, is right, <clears throat> there's always the ch when, when like if you get a Chinese person on TV, they have to cook Chinese food. Right why <laughs> do you know what i mean like yeah <laughs> it's like catch 22 it's like okay we see chinese representation on tv but the, again they're cooking so 
Yeah. So that's that stereotype as well. Our our community only work, work in the in the catering industry. So because if you if you look at like Jamie Oliver or Rick Stein, any of these people, they cook they cook everyone's food. So why can they cook everyone's food and we can only cook Chinese food? Do you know what I mean? What's the crack with your work and stuff now? Are you back to full capacity? Are you working back? We have in restaurant? <clears throat> we've reduced covers, but we're back. We're back to like running fully. I think hospitality is really struggling in terms of staffing. I think a lot of people have left the industry, maybe out of choice because, you know, a lot of restaurants were closed. Uh, people have probably had mortgages to pay and things like that. So they probably went and got different jobs. And now I'm happier in those jobs because it's not as demanding as hospitality. I mean, hospitality industries, you got to really love what you do because it's not glamorous as they make it on TV and MasterChef and all of these things. You know, that's just the final dish or whatnot. But it's really not that glamorous. You know, you're in there, you're grafting all day. You're on your feet for like 15 hours a day, you know, from like seven in the morning up to like, it could be even at one o'clock at night sometimes. And, and, the, and the pay's not worth it. The pay's, the pay's bad, which needs to change. This really needs to change in hospitality. But who do you put the price on? Do you then increase the price? Because the pr- money has to come from somewhere, right? So you up the price on the menu, is the customer willing to pay that price? Jesus, why did it jump from like 20 quid now to 30 quid? You know, so it's a hard one to balance. You make very fine, uh, like profit, like it's very fine line of profit that you make in hospitality. Yeah. It's, not... you, make, you, make it, you make it on the drinks more than you do on the food. Yeah, for sure. Especially in Ireland as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a tough one. It's, it's tough. But I, I kind of feel that Chinese food or Asian food is always seen as cheap, right? And I don't know why. Is it our own doing because we absorb costs for many, many years? Because I remember there's a Scottish artist named Carly Wu in, in Scot- I think she's in Glasgow. And she drew something like uh, on her Instagram. She's a, does a lot of drawings. And she drew like chow mein. And I was like, all right, okay. It's like soft noodles, right? Side dish. And, I was, and then I was like, oh, it's giving me like, nostalgic feels that you know and I was like 10 years ago that would have been three euros on on, on the menu on the side orders and she was like oh it's only like four pound fifty now and I'm like in 10 years it's only gone up from three euros to four pounds you know, obviously euros and pounds are different but I'm like it's not really a lot right and it's noodles it's, it's a good it's noodles being stir fried with bean sprouts and the seasoning and it's it's nice right it's healthy and I'm like why, why are Chinese people always absorbing the cost and it's only when that takeaway or ration puts up the price 50p. Okay, we, we put up the price 50 you know, and it's only going up like that, but someone should come together and be like, this is the right, you know, we should just kind of come up together at the same time. Because people pay a lot of money for like Italian food. People pay like 25 euros for a bowl of pasta. You know, people are willing to pay that. And that's dry pasta. I wouldn't even say it's fresh pasta. Do you know what I mean? So mm. why, why are some that's... certain cuisines like, better than others like French or Italian you know and this is the way western when you grow up in the west it's portrayed to you you know that this is gastronomy this is high-end gastronomy for for me now when I think about it I'm like yes I've trained in this for the past 10 years I cook I cook white food I cook white food quite well I probably cook it better than some white, white people but I don't want to cook that in the future I want to cook what I feel happy cooking now that's why I'm moving to Asia I will ask everyone on the on the podcast this the, sort of the final question, and it's obviously the podcast called Being Chirish, and I'd love to hear 
your perspective on the best thing about being Chinese and the best thing about being Irish, but obviously you're Chinese Malaysian background as well. So, you know, there's that side of your identity as well that you can embrace. So, you know, you come from different influences, I suppose. So if you want to talk a wee bit more about, you know, the best thing about all those identities that you, you carry. Oh, well, the best thing about being Chinese, Malaysian and growing up in Ireland, <laughs> I think Irish people are loved around the world. It's no matter where you go, whatever country, and you say, I'm from Ireland, okay, you, you don't, we don't look Irish. But when, the, when you speak about Irish people, there's a, there's a love for Irish people. And I think it's because Irish people are friendly. And I guess it's that, that's kind of like, it's good in that sense. I've lost, I've lost that part of me by living in the UK for 10 years. I'm not the same nice person. I, I'm quite miserable now. And <laughs> that's the UK has done to me. It's maybe quite Brexity. <laughs> 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 because when I first moved to Scotland, it was fine. Scottish people are just as friendly as Irish people. So you could be yourself. And then I moved to London. It was the Olympics. And London was very, very friendly at the time because it was Olympics. Everyone was like buzzing, you know, those people like, you were lost. And I was like, oh, where would you need to go? You know, people were like singing on the tube. They were talking. It was just such a nice atmosphere around the city. And then it ended. And then the real London came out. And it was just like, no more talking on the tube. Keep your head down, put your headphones in. I was like, this is shit. You know, because you're sitting on the tube. And even now when I go visit London, because I, I live in the Midlands now, and it's, it's friendlier. Right, you know, it's you're living in a still it's city. Nottingham is a city, but it's a friendly city. You know, you can talk to people. Whereas, like, if you go to London, you, I kind of want to talk to someone. You know, you're sitting beside someone, you kind of want to go, "Hey, how, how's it going?" Like, it's just normal, right? Just having a normal conversation. But it, that's unacceptable in London. Why? Why is human interaction unacceptable? It doesn't make sense to me. You may get your stick, Kelvins, because when you move back, when you move to Hong Kong next year. <laughs> There's no talking to strangers on the tube. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't know what to say. <laughs> I'm not going to know what to say anyway. So I'm like, in English, please. <laughs> <laughs> so the best thing about being Chinese Malaysian? Best thing about being Chinese Malaysian. Well, there's two. You see, Malaysia, right, is a melting pot of, you've got, I guess, Chinese people there. You have Malay people. And you have Indian people. There's obviously more uh, cultures like this, the Pranakan as well. And I think nowadays there's probably a lot more. But I would say they're the four main cultures that make up Malaysia. And with that, you know, you have four very cultures rich in like food, right? And when they take influences of each other and this fusion of dishes, the food in Malaysia, I think, like when a lot of people travel to Malaysia, they say the food is amazing. They will say Singapore, like Singapore and Malaysia is the same. I, like that's going to cause a bit of controversy. But Singapore and Malaysia is the same because it used to be one whole country and then Singapore just went independent. So if anything, Singapore is just a watered down version of Malaysian food. <laughs> oh, Shots you're, fired. You're, Shots you're, fired. <laughs> you're, you're starting fights. <laughs> <laughs> no, they know I'm only joking. <laughs> That's the good thing about that because it's very, I, I grew up with that, you know, that kind of food and Chinese food well, we know about Chinese food. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's 
I guess I'm blessed to grow up with all of that. I wouldn't change it. Definitely wouldn't change it. You know, I think the, the shit times you had, yeah, they were shit, but they make, it's like learning curve or like it makes you grow more resilient or have like a, a thicker skin, you know? And you know how to deal with those in the future, you know, so. It's the beauty of coming from a diverse background that you, you're more open to meeting more diverse people. So your sort of social circle is very diverse, I think. I, when I when I talk to people who are from different identities, their different circles, very diverse. So it's 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 a nice way to kind of meet new people and, and keep an open mind. Kelvin, absolutely delighted that you took time out and came on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure chatting to you and a fellow Cherish person. It's always it's always a laugh when when we when we get to chat about just growing up in Ireland and it's such a like it's a beautiful country and it's such a unique place to grow up I think um, even being from Northern Ireland as well and growing up during during the troubles is is a very unique experience and and I love hearing other people's experiences of different different parts of Ireland. Thanks for taking your time and and speaking to me. It was a, a lovely conversation and thanks for. No, seeking us out on Instagram that I'm slowly <laughs> learning to use properly, but uh, I really appreciate it, uh, Kelvin. So thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. You know, it's been, it's great. Like I said, when someone said, "Have you seen this childish podcast?" I was like, "Oh my god, we need this." You know, the world needs it. So it's great to see more representation, and I think what you're doing is amazing. And hopefully, we can, you know, you can build on this, and because there are loads of Chinese people in Ireland that hide, they're all hiding. You know, I don't know where they're hiding, but they're hiding somewhere, you know, and we need to drag them all out of the rocks of hiding and yeah, I guess come together and because we share a lot of these experiences that other people wouldn't, that other people can't relate to. So it's nice to just talk to people and not to not have to explain yourself, you know. Yeah, for sure. Just chat, just chat, you know, and just be yourself. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's just a nice feeling. But thanks again for having me. uh, Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Cheers, Kevin. Thanks so much.